Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we flash back to some great stories during season two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, and we begin with the man known as Marvelous. The legendary Marv Albert retired after the Eastern Conference Finals, capping off a nearly 60-year journey into the psyche of an American sports fandom. Commissioner Adam Silver called him the soundtrack of the NBA, and with good reason. Albert was behind the mic for many Bulls games, meaning he got to experience what very few people did. Wow, there's so many memories. And, and what I enjoyed most about doing those games, aside from the excitement of the fact that they were the traveling Beatles, we often stayed at the same hotel uh, as the Bulls on the road. And the crowds outside, they, they had to have uh, uh, basically security people throughout the hotel, certainly in the lobby. They wouldn't let anyone else in. Uh, but we always, almost every game prior to the game, would have a sit-down interview with Michael, and he was great. I, every every soundbite, everything he said was usable on the air because we'd roll in, uh, you know, player-type uh, uh, soundbites, and we we'd get four or five from Michael, and usually you'd run one or two, but everything he said and you could really i can remember even in the uh playoff series uh the championship series against the sonics you could tell a lot from what he would say uh 
how he was using the Gary Payton matchup. Uh, he always looked for motivation. I mean, mm -hmm. I can remember there was a situation in Cleveland during the playoffs once there was a woman sitting courtside, probably in her 50s. And yeah, I don't know what she was yelling at, Michael. Maybe I don't want to know. But obviously, she was annoying him <laughs> as when he come down that end of the court. And he used that as motivation. Uh, he would look at her after every basket, every nice pass he would make. And I could see in talking about Peyton, uh, the look on his face and how he was able to use that. I remember asking him or mentioning one time, boy, I, I thought Peyton did a nice defensive job on you. And that got him going. What do you mean nice defensive job? <laughs> I, I can do whatever I want again. But that was Michael. And he, we found him to be just uh, terrific. And that was the first time also uh, I, I got to know Steve Kerr, which has been now a long time uh, friendship. We worked together for eight years on the air. He left at one point. He said it was because he had enough of me, but he left to uh, <laughs> take the general manager job with the Phoenix Suns. Uh, but we knew immediately that he was going to be excellent on the air because of his sense of humor. He, he would write, you know, for various uh, websites. Uh, he was opinionated and he was just great with people. And that's what he's brought to coaching with the Warriors. You know how successful he's been. Of course, it helps to have that kind of roster, but you still have to be able to coach it. And uh, he, you know, he was just a, a delight to be around. You know, getting back to Jordan, he's provided so many highlight reels for fans around the world and broadcasters like yourself. But one in 1991 that has become instantly famous and so enduring, it was so succinct and, may I add, spectacular. So tell me a story <laughs> I don't know about those few words and how they have become so famous. Well, it was the move that he made. He's now one for nine. The look away to Levingston. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. That's 13 consecutive field goals. Maybe Julius Irving had done it, you know, from time to time prior to his days in the NBA because we... I was able to see Julius when he was in the ABA because he did spend time with the, with the Nets. Uh, but it, it probably had not been seen where he skies and then switches hands in midair to hit that, uh, hit that field goal uh, in game one against uh, the Lakers. And the word spectacular just came to me. It was not, you know, anything. And it's a simple word, you know, it's been used for other plays over the years by many broadcasters, but it just, uh, it felt, I was very much about the rhythm of the game. I, I thought there was, it was almost like jazz, you know, uh, <laughs> because there is a rhythm to it. Uh, and I think it just happened to come out of my mouth. There's nothing. Are, are you amazed? Are you amazed today that it is, it's almost like Jordan's calling card is your call of that, particular basket well i don't know he's done so much more i mean to me there are so many memories about michael uh you know from the six three-pointers he hit 
in game one against Portland in the NBA finals. I, I think it was game one. Maybe yeah. not. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Uh, but I remember he came out very early to shoot around, which he rarely did. You know, he'd usually just come out with uh, the rest of the guys. He, and, and he was, uh, I was doing that game with uh, Mike Fratello, uh and uh, Magic Johnson and we were all surprised because he was just shooting threes. And in those days, three-pointers were not something that you would see, particularly from him. I believe he was like 27% from three-point range that season. So it was really uh, – we were kind of taken aback that he was taking the, uh, the three-point shots. He was out there for a good 45 minutes, and then he hits the six in a row that he looked over – He was looking at magic. I know the czar claims he was looking at him. <laughs> Believe me, he was not. <laughs> but uh, he was, you know, he gave that shrug. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was also, uh, it was in the direction of, of Cliff Robinson was standing right next to him also. But it was, it was really at magic. I, as if to say, I can't believe I'm doing this. There is something so refreshing about vulnerability. That is part and parcel why my interview with former Channel 5 and award-winning sportscaster Peggy Kaczynski was so rewarding. She makes no bones about her lust, and I do mean lust for food and wine, but also her anger and disappointment about rejection. It eventually led to what turned out to be a fabulous career. It's funny how we make our mark in this industry, Peggy. You have to find a way to break down barriers, but in your case, there were a few walls in the way, and one of them was when you were trying to get a sports internship at Channel 5. Tell me a story I don't know. Oh, my gosh. How do you know about this story? Oh, man. Okay, so I was home from school, and... um, sitting in our kitchen on Odell Avenue on the Northwest side of Chicago. And I had to jump on the L train for my internship interview at channel five. And I was all nervous and I'm reading the, the sports pages and took the L train to the old merchandise mart, which is where channel five was at the time. And I had my interview in the sports department. So you got to pick like, what were your top three departments that you would like the internship in it? Number one, it was sports. And I walk in and it was obvious to me that the producer was annoyed at having to interview me. And um, he starts asking me questions and, um, you know, typical sports interview. And then He reaches back behind him and he takes the old Trivial Pursuit game down off the shelf. And for people who are old enough to remember, not the Trivial Pursuit on your phone, although it's similar with the app, it was a game, a card, you know, with card games and and, and different categories, you know, history, entertainment, sports, whatever. And the orange cards were the sports cards. I remember it well. He took the orange cards and just started asking me sports trivia that I didn't know. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't have an answer for him. 
And I just sat there and I felt like somebody was trying to embarrass me. And I, he, he basically was like, oh, well, okay, this interview's over, you know? And, and, and I stood up and I looked at him and I said, listen, I may not know the answers to those questions, but I sure as hell know how to find the answers. And back then it was all about doing your research and, and making sure you were never wrong. You always had to proofread your copy and everything. And I was humiliated and I left and I got on the train and I was just steaming about this. Um, I did not get the internship and I got the internship in my second choice department, which was the programming department. And the programming department put on their talk shows. And one of the talk shows was the Warner Saunders show. And it was a public affairs show. Warner Saunders at the time was one of the sportscasters crossing over into news. And Warner and I would sit there and talk sports all the time. And I just learned so much. And I started pitching ideas for uh, talk show ideas that centered around sports. And he loved it. And he walked into the bosses and he said, listen, she knows what she's doing. We should hire her. And they ended up offering me a job as a production assistant in the Channel 5 programming department back in 1986 and whatever year this was. And um, I worked on the talk shows. Um, I did that for a couple of years uh, before I went to a Sportscasters Camp of America um, in Rensselaer, Indiana, and uh, was the only woman at the, the Sportscasters Camp. And Reggie Theus was also in the camp as a camper learning how to be a sportscaster. Was he really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we interviewed Sean Kemp, um, I remember, <laughs> uh, who was in high school, was dominating in Indiana high school. And um, that's when I said, you know, if I'm ever going to really try to be an on-air sportscaster, I need I just need to break off from Channel 5 and leave and go do this. And uh, had met an assignment editor at ESPN. I went to ESPN as a production assistant, worked there for four years in Bristol, Connecticut, and then finally made the break um, on air, filled in at um, WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. I filled in on Thanksgiving or Christmas Day, I don't remember which one. And um, then uh, WATM in Johnstown, Pennsylvania hired me for one night. And I quit my job at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut. I packed up my car and put my entire apartment in that car, drove through a blizzard to Johnstown, Pennsylvania and filled in for one night. And I was their sportscaster for one night so that their sports... Caster could go to cover the pirates at spring training. And uh, I didn't have a place to stay. And the news director at the time, his office was filled with stuffed animals, the animals, the stuffed animals that you would get in, you know, the claw game where you put a quarter in and you try to use the, the, the uh, claw to, to pick an animal. Sure. So it was filled with those. It was a little odd. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was a little strange. <laughs> and um, I said, well, where, where do I stay? 
uh, where, where am I staying tonight? And I didn't have a credit card back then. This was like 1990. Um, and he said, well, it's up to you. You know, you can ask any of the people that work here if, you know, you could sleep on their couch. And it didn't feel right to me. It just didn't feel like it, it was, I was very uncomfortable. And um, so I walked over across the street. There was a, either a red roof in or one of those motels. And I um, talked my way in, <laughs> said I was with the television station across the street. Do you have a room? They gave me a room and um, I stayed there for one night. Uh, after I worked, I, I went and slept for about four hours, got up at 4.35 in the morning and I made my drive all the way back to Chicago listening to the score because I could listen to it. You could get that signal through the mountains of Pennsylvania. My entire ride, I listened to the morning show. Uh, it was crazy. And I kept thinking this uh, one day, I'm going to work there one day. This is, this is my, my dream. This is it. And then I never got paid from the TV station in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. You never got paid? No, because they got the bill from the motel. And they said, well, you, uh, you basically used us there and um, therefore we had to pay for your room. So um, we'll call it even. <laughs> that was, oh gosh. And let me tell you, I was never so grateful to see Johnstown, Pennsylvania in my rearview mirror. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches and also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers. Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. Those of us who were fortunate enough to have covered Walter Payton realize what a great player he was. Jared Payton saw a different side of his dad and had to go through a different heartache when he learned he was dying. Payton recalled that fateful day in November 1999 when we all lost someone very special. It was a crazy day. It literally was. Uh, it was, you know, I was back home from Miami. A couple days before, I got a phone call. Rob Chizinski, who was the tight ends coach back then at Miami, he also recruited me while before I got to Miami. And so he called my, my dorm room and told me I needed to come over to the facility. And I get there and Coach Chud looks at me. He's like, listen, man, your dad wants you home. 
And when he said that, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it wasn't good. And I remember that flight home from, from Miami to Chicago, just so many thoughts going through my brain about what's going on, what's happening. You know, no one's really telling me what's happening with him and how he's feeling. And I remember getting home and being home and I look back on it now and I'm just very thankful that I had that opportunity to spend some of those last days with him. But yeah, it was, my sister was at school. Um, I remember the, the night before we was Halloween and I went out with my friends and we went to a, a haunted house. And then we went back to a friend of mine who lived down the street from us and we were there and I just had this feeling it's like, I got to go home. And everybody's like, why you got to go home? What are you doing? Hey, what? And a lot of people were wondering why I was home. And I wasn't telling my friends who were still in the area, like why I was home. Cause they knew that I had a game that weekend. <laughs> they were like, what are you doing home? And I remember just getting back to the house. It was about five minutes away and, and being there. And, you know, just that morning, just everything didn't feel right. And it was like this weird, like everybody was holding their breath the entire day. And so when my dad was at the hospital and said that he wanted to come home, I knew that that, that day could be coming, that we were going to lose him. And um, funny the day before, though, I told him, I mean, he wasn't able to talk, but he would look at me and, you know, George, his eyes he'd give you those eyes, man, and he better straighten up. I told him I wanted to buy a motorcycle, and I'll never forget the look on his eyes when he looked at me like, you are not buying a motorcycle. <laughs> and um, that, was kind of, that was kind of the last interaction that I had with him before he passed. But then the day that he did pass, um, while everybody in my house was going crazy, because we had family there, and everybody was just going crazy, and I remember sitting down with him and, and holding his hand. His hand was still warm. And I remember just talking to him and telling him that, like, listen, dad, I got this. Like you, every single moment of my life that I've shared with you has led me to this point. Like he, he was grooming me to be able to handle everything that I was going to have to handle down the line. Like he was a visionary. He saw it. And so I told him, I said, I'm going to do the things that you weren't able to do. I'm going to accomplish things that you were trying to do that you couldn't do. I'm going to do those things. I'm going to do them. Hence the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I mean, my dad loved being on TV, loved calling games and stuff. And so now I get a chance to do that on a daily basis. I know he loved, you know, restaurants and all and, and bars. I'm in that business now too um there was at one point i had my own beer my dad had his beer i mean there's so many similarities of things if you look at my life and and how it's aligned right now it's a, it's a lot from what i saw from him and so um you know george it, it, a weird day you had to give the news while my family and i were trying to figure out how we were going to break the news he was sweetness. He was light on his feet. He was the numbers say the greatest runner in NFL history. And tonight, Walter Payton is gone. It's a weird thing, you know, when you you have a celebrity as a father, as a parent, things aren't as normal like it would be probably for everybody else, you know, and.
you know, an hour or two later, we had helicopters flying over our house. We had people outside of the gate, just like, so there's really, honestly, I mean, from in that moment, there was, there was never time to like sit back and grieve and like process everything that happened because everything was moving so fast. It was moving way too fast. And, um, you know, now I, I, I sit back and I reflect on some of those, those times and that time and, and process it a little bit better now. And and I'm just proud of how, you know, my mom, my sister and I have really, you know, carried on the legacy and have, have really kept my dad's spirit alive. But it's not just us, it's the fans out there as well, who every day are hitting me up talking about they wear the number 34 every single Sunday, or you go to a Bears game and you see all the 34 jerseys, or you get the emails about a kid named Peyton because you know, the, the parents were huge Bears fans and, and they love that. Or or we are the dogs. We have so many emails of dogs named Peyton. It's just amazing. And so mm-hmm. it's those people that help us keep his legacy alive. And um, it's the reason why he's talked about every single day. Tom Thayer has seen it all, and not just on the football field where he's analyzed some great players. But one night, the longtime radio analyst for the Bears was taken out of his element and got to experience something with the chairman of the board. And we're not talking about the chairman of the board of the Chicago Bears. No, we're talking about the one and only chairman of the board. The reopening of the Chicago Theater, my buddy, who is a friend of mine now for 30 years, Tom Dreesen, a locally grown, locally bred uh, comedian, was the opening act for Frank Sinatra. And he did more opening acts for Sinatra than anybody else in the history of his career. So I'm, uh, you know, I knew that he was coming in town. So he calls me up and goes, hey, Tom, you want to go to the Sinatra concert tonight? I go, Are you kidding me? Of course I do. And he goes, well, do this, put on a sport coat, a tie dress, you know, represent yourself professionally. I'm going to come and pick you up and we're going to go to the Chicago theater and we're going to watch Mr. Sinatra tonight. And I'm, I'm his opening act. So he comes by, picks me up. We go to the Chicago theater. And so now it's, it's me, Dreesen and Tim Reitman. And so before the show, they we go up and he goes i want to introduce you to mr sinatra before this concert so let's go up there and meet him so it's just like something you'd see out of any movie that you've seen we walk into the dressing room and frank sinatra once he put his pants on he never sat down because he didn't want to interrupt the crease in his pants so we walk up there (laughs) and he's in he's in his whole upper body shoes and socks but he doesn't have his pants on yet and we come in there and his best friends, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, they're sitting in the dressing room. And I'm going, God, this is this is a scene out of some of the movies that we see <laughs> of the day. And so Tom Dreesen says, Mr. Sinatra, I would like you to introduce you to two of the, our Chicago Bears. This is Tom Thayer and this is Tim Reitman. Um, and they're going to be at the concert tonight. And said, wow, it's an honor to meet you. Um, I, I'm just so thrilled because I don't know if I've ever met a bigger superstar you know than that and so we sit up there and we have a little bit of conversation and he says hey kid go downstairs enjoy the show we'll see you after and so it was kind of like a mini setup because Dreesen says hey well I'm doing my gig sit out in the audience and watch me and then when I'm done come back here backstage 
And, you know, you can sit here and watch Mr. Sinatra from the stage. So I go, wow. So Dreesen, Dreesen is awesome. And I don't know if you've ever seen him as an opening act or in concert. He's just super funny and super relatable to the audience because he has so much in common with everybody that's there watching. Thank you very much. One correction. Uh, uh, I didn't open for Frank Sinatra. He closed for me. Was, uh... Dreesen does his show. After the show, I get up and I walk backstage. Now I'm sitting on the side of the stage and I'm watching uh, Mr. Sinatra do his, his act, not his act, his, his singing. And he doesn't do encores. He does his gig, sets the mic down and walks off. So um, I'm sitting there watching and all of a sudden he's getting ready to do his last song and he looks off the stage and he goes, hey kid, come here. And he points to me. Mm. And so I, I walk out on stage oh, and man. he goes, and he, he goes, he goes, guys, you got to know my good friend here from the Chicago Bears. This is Tom Fair. And, you know, people start clapping because we've just had Super Bowl success and stuff. And he gives me an embrace on stage. and He goes, kid, this song is for you. And he starts singing My Kind of Town, Chicago. <laughs> this is my kind of town, Chicago. Gosh, and what an experience. I, George, I, I mean, still to this day, when I tell it, tell the story to people, they're just blown away, blown away by the whole experience. And so he sings the song and he puts the microphone down. He walks off stage. We walk out an exit door. We get into a limousine. Um, Barbara Sinatra, myself, Frank and Dreesen and Reitman. And we go to the old Kelly Mondelli's that used to be up on Clark Street. Sure, yeah. Um, so we drive up the Kelly Mondelli's. The restaurant's empty. And there's four Chicago police officers, officers sitting at the front table. So we walk into the restaurant. And um, now it's, uh, it's, again, it's me, Dreesen, Frank, his wife, and Reitman, and in the restaurant waiting for us is Ray Meyer. And so, <laughs> wow. Now, <laughs> so this, this is like 1030 at night now after a show. And we sit in the restaurant, just the group of us. And we sit there and have dinner and Frank um, tells stories probably till two o'clock in the morning, 230 in the morning. Um, and it's just an incredible experience for me. And so I was just getting ready for the first time in my life to go to Las Vegas to play in one of those rocks and jocks uh, softball games. And so I was sitting across the table from Mrs. Sinatra and I was telling her, I'm really excited. I'm getting ready to go to Las Vegas the first time. And I, I'm really excited about my opportunity. And Mr. Sinatra goes, Hey, because let me tell you something about Las Vegas. He goes, Las Vegas is a fun town. It's a good town. He goes, but when I ran Las Vegas, it was the place to be. <laughs> and I was like, just, I was just amazed at everything and on hung on every word he said, every story he told us um, from, you know, Dean Martin stories and uh, some of the other concerts that he played around the world. And, you know, I think um, of anybody he brought up, the only player that he was familiar with his name was Walter Payton. 
And he knew, he got, hey, you know, tell me about Walter Payton. You know, what, what type of guy he is? Why, you know, why is he so great? And I, you know, I, it just made me be more impressed with being a teammate of Walter Payton because here's one of the most popular men in the world and really one of the only teams or guys that he knew on the team. Um, he was Walter Payton. And he referred to McMahon as the crazy guy in the headband, um, <laughs> you know, like that. But, you know, when, when Mr. Sinatra makes a reference to Walter Payton, it, I was, again, it made me more impressed to be in that storytelling seat, but to hear him refer to Walter Payton as Walter Payton. And it, I was, you know, just, I was so impressed with Walter anyways that it just, you know, just amplified it by Mr. Sinatra knowing who that guy is. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's Hot Dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, Condiments, and Classic Deli Meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Charlie Steiner is one of my favorite people in this business. Gifted with the ability to tell a story with the best of them, the voice of the Dodgers, who also broadcast the Yankees, Jets, and was an integral part of ESPN's growth, took us across the pond for this priceless story about tennis. And not just a match. You made a name for yourself in a different way. Tell me a story I don't know about the feisty Charlie Steiner, an incident with Wimbledon, and an encounter with a London gossip columnist. Yeah, you're uh, talking about the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club in 1981. Uh, that was at the peak of the Borg-McEnroe rivalry. Championship point for McEnroe. And he's walked away from the baseline, waiting for the noise to subside. He's won it. He's won it. It was a great rivalry, although they only played each other head-to-head -head nine times. In that year, 81, McEnroe uh, was going out with a, a female tennis player, uh, Stacy Margolin from California. And the Brits and the gossip columnists, the rags, got wind of the fact that they were breaking up. And there was a... Uh, gossip columnist named uh, James Whitaker, whose previous assignment, swear to God, was to determine whether or not Lady Di, then Lady Di, was a virgin or not. That was his- <laughs> What a story. <laughs> that was his- So after each one of McEnroe's matches in a very <laughs> compressed 
media room that comfortably sat 20 or 25 people and a big long table, a couple of microphones that he would answer. They all would answer questions after their matches. And after each one of McEnroe's victories, McEnroe would say, look, I will talk to you about tennis all day. I will not talk about my personal life. Well, after each match, Whitaker would ask the same question. McEnroe would heat up. And then finally, uh, in after winning the semifinal match, I think it was against Rod Frawley, Whitaker asks one more time, is it true, Mr. McEnroe, you and Stacey Margolin are Splitsville? Swear to God, never heard Splitsville. <laughs> so McEnroe then goes nuts. Ma uh, microphones fly, he storms out, and, uh, you know, he launched F-bombs uh, all over them. And I'm in this tiny room, I guess I was the only radio guy, you know, from the States who was there. And I'm sitting, this is how long ago it was, I'm sitting next to a, uh, a writer for Life magazine, back when there was a Life magazine. Mm -hmm. And we go over to this Whitaker guy and say, come on, man, you're screwing it up for everybody else. Uh, writers can't get their quotes. We can't get our tape. And with each passing day, the, the tension was clearly uh, building in the Wimbledon press room. And now this little room that sat 25 had maybe 50 in there. And it was like a Wild West saloon shootout. People are yelling and screaming. And I'm in talking to this Whitaker guy. And then out of the blue comes a second Brit named Nigel Clark, a little fellow. And he started to point his finger into my face. It was like uh, Earl Weaver going into the face of uh, Ron Luciano. And I said, get your finger out of my face. And he keeps putting it back. And so now it's really beginning to heat up. And people are screaming and shit is flying all over the place. And then uh, Nigel gets up on a chair and he says, you want to settle this thing outside. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Um, and and he, he jumps off the chair on uh, heading in my direction. Now I'm, I'm reasonably aware that something big could possibly be happening here. Do I want to deck him with an uppercut? What are we going to do here? So he jumps on me. And I hadn't been in a fight since junior high school in a touch football game with a late hit. And I put my shoulder right into his, uh, right into his breastbone, right into the middle of his chest. He goes flying, and then finally we're broken up. So now... This is a big deal because this doesn't happen at the All England and Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. Not before and not since. <laughs> now, the Bobbies come in to this press room and they clear it out. Ross Greenberg, who was then the executive producer at uh, HBO, and he was a young guy, and it was like their first or second year where they were doing the weekday matches. He said, come with me. And he, okay. And so he hid me out inside the HBO truck for an hour or two while they're looking for me. And so I finally leave, go back to the hotel, 
I get to the hotel, and this is before there was voicemail and any of that stuff. I had a stack of pink message sheets of phone calls from all over the United States. I'm going, uh-oh. And I call RKO, my employer. I was I was their boss. And, I, and at the other end, Olbermann, Keith Olbermann, who was filling in for me that day. And he said, because I hadn't identified my name as yet. I said, uh, was that you? I said, uh-huh. So I was not answering anything. And you may recall, that was, those were the days when Dick Enberg did those little 15-minute Wimbledon highlights before Johnny Carson. Sure, sure. So they invited me on. And I was all set to go. And then a fellow named Frank Sesno, who was then a radio reporter for CBS, stationed in London. We became friends as a result. He went to CNN and uh, had, had a great career. He said, you know, that's probably not a great idea. So, and I said, good idea, I won't. Next day, I come back, and that night, the BBC News at 10, we were the lead story with you know, some video of this free-for-all. And I'm walking back uh, into the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, and this guy with a handlebar mustache and a big burly pipe uh, comes up to me and he said, pardon me, are you Mr. Steiner? I said, uh, uh, yes. And I thought, well, okay. And he said, how does it feel to be an international hooligan? I went, oh. <laughs> now I get inside with <laughs> the press room and there are more people there than the day before and the day before that and so on. And I am summoned to the, uh, the colonel, whatever his title was, uh, the guy who was the, uh, ran the tournament into his office and, uh, sat me down. I'm thinking, all right, I'm done. And uh, he said, would you like some tea? Sure. How, how British of you. Um, and he says to me, well, thank you for fumigating the press at Wimbledon because we have nothing but these um, gossip guys who are just messing it up for everybody else. And so I, okay, I survived that. Um, as it turns out, uh, an hour or so later, he invites uh, Nigel Clark into his office and said, thank you for fumigating the press room because those Yanks are just messing everything. <laughs> so he was completely <laughs> diplomatic and, 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 and life went on. And, and, and that day at 12.30, they had, uh, had this announcement in the press room at 12.35 or whatever, we will replay yesterday's uh, brouhaha. That's what they said, the brouhaha in the press room. And so now it, everybody has seen it. And uh, that, I guess that was my introduction on the uh, international sports stage. And you know, I got to meet all these great columnists back when Wimbledon was a really big deal. You know, it was uh, Dave Anderson and Mike Lupica and Jim Murray and all of these great, great Dick Schaap um, broadcasters and writers of their time. And suddenly, through all of that, I got into their club and uh, became friends with all of them over there. My thanks to Marv Albert, Peggy Gosinski, Jared Payton, Tom Thayer, and Charlie Steiner for our look back, and all the other guests who made up season two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. And of course, 
to TJ Reeves for keeping this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing and mixing, and T.T. Schinken for her wonderful graphics. And thanks to our generous sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market. Join me next week when we present another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.